Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. You are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, WERU.org. Up next, Ron Beard with his monthly program, Talk of the Towns. First, we do want to thank one person who made a pledge during Highway 61 that came in at the last moment and uh, was not thanked on the air. Edward from Belfast has become a new member in support of Highway 61. He says there's so much good programming not heard anywhere else. You can make a pledge of support for Highway 61, Talk of the Towns, or any other WERU programming at 1-800-643-6273 or WERU.org. We will now go to Talk of the Towns live from the WERU studios. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, the 2000... 18 elections in Maine and the midterm elections for Congress have galvanized many citizens and wearied others. What can we learn from this election cycle? How is the health of our democracy holding up? We're happy to have some guests in the studio who can help us with that topic. I'm happy to welcome Ann Luther um, of the League of Women Voters of Maine. And she's also the host of Democracy Forum that airs on the third Friday of each month at WERU um, at the same time slot. Welcome, Ann. Thanks for having me, Ron. And uh, Jamie McCown. Jamie, Jamie is the James Russell Wiggins Chair of Government and Polity. That's a mouthful. We'll hear more <laughs> about that. And Jamie is from College of the Atlantic. Welcome to you, Jamie. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, first, let's get started. Uh, Jamie, how did you get interested? You're a historian. Um, how did you get interested in, in electoral politics and, and uh, the history of, of elections? Oh, wow. Um, So I guess I was that kind of student who was pretty much often uh, interested in politics when I was in high school. And then um, from there kind of took that. I I was one of those debate nerds in high school and in college and and beyond. And believe it or not, actually started working more in politics uh, for a while after kind of getting recruited out of debate land to do opposition research on candidates, (laughs) uh, which is, I guess, a certain skill set that we tend to have. And from there, you know, when I went on to graduate school and began studying kind of political history and, and got in particularly into rhetoric and, and public address studies, um, and, you know, that kind of merged into contemporary politics as well. And so whenever I've, you know, before coming to College of the Atlantic, I was teaching at another institution and uh, working with students there on the ground to get them registered to vote, get them active in voting. And I've taught classes for a number of years on elections and voting. So I do the historical work, but then also kind of meld that with my kind of, you know, interest in contemporary politics and what's going on on a day-to-day basis. Great. Um, and um, I noted that, noticed that you've just been um, awarded a, a wonderful prize, um, the Maine Association of 
broadcasters um, awarded a uh, the first prize in public affairs for your show on immigration and and how can we live without immigration. So we were thrilled. That was wonderful. It was Thank really you. great. Yeah. yeah, and you know we're an all volunteer operation. You know, competing against the big guys and the commercial stations. So for us to get that recognition was a big tribute to the work that my team of volunteers at the League of Women Voters has done. That radio show has been one of the best projects mm. I've done for the League. We have learned so much. We've mm. had so many fantastic conversations. Um, you know, famous people, national experts will come on the show if they can do it by the phone. So we've really had... Um, some fantastic knowledge transfer going mm. on, and it's just been great. Mm. How did you get started with the League of Women Voters? What was your interest in that? I, um, you know, I was kind of interested in politics and civics and government when I was a young girl. I went to Girl State in mm. the state where sure. I went to high school, and um, but then you know I went to college. I got a private sector job, and I was lucky enough to be able to retire a little bit early. And joining the League of Women Voters was the first thing that I did mm. when I retired. Um, and it was just by inches, you know, a little bit here, a little bit more there, mm. a little bit more on the other side. And pretty soon it's a consuming passion. I mean, I just love this work. I love the civic engagement. I love the volunteers that I work with. I love the information. I just um, I have a passion for it. Mm. And just to remind listeners who might not be familiar, what's the mission of, of the League? Um, it's it's a non uh, partisan effort. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely nonpartisan. The League of Women Voters was it's coming up actually on its hundredth anniversary, founded in on February fourteenth, nineteen twenty, um, on the cusp of the passage of the nineteenth amendment granting women the right to vote. It was formed by suffrage fighters, you know, mm. women who'd been working for the vote for uh, 50 or 75, not personally, but yeah. or the organizations. And, you know, it was it started out helping women figure out how to use their franchise and taking positions on issues that helped women. Um, today, our mission is totally nonpartisan. We never support candidates or parties. We do work on issues, particularly pro-democracy issues. And um, we're about participatory democracy, getting citizens engaged, giving them the information that they need to cast a vote, helping them um, fulfill their true capacity in democracy. And, and, Jamie, you play a similar role at College of Atlantic. Um, you know, you, you're helping students and sometimes faculty understand <laughs> what they might be voting on. Yeah, I mean, we figure that's an important component of, of the type of civic engagement that the community, you know, holds dear. And that includes not just making sure that students, faculty, and staff have opportunities to vote, registering to vote, being engaged, opportunities to volunteer with campaigns of all political affiliations and, and proclivities. And also to do, we try to do voter education sessions as well. We use the League of Women Voters Guides. We'll use the Secretary of State's voting guide as well. Mm -hmm. um, particularly when it comes to some of the issues, you know, it's interesting. We kind of say, here are the candidates, you go find out that. But when it comes to, you know, very sometimes bond issues, mm -hmm. you know, state referendums, local referendums, LUO amendments, um, sometimes even, you know, faculty and staff who've lived in a community for a long period of time come up to me and I'll just whisper, hey, you know, could you explain that to me a little better? <laughs> I don't really know. And so uh, we think it's important to make sure that it's not just that people are engaging, but they have the opportunities to kind of know what they're engaging about. And, and we actually encourage students in particular, you know, people to say, if you don't feel like you are up to speed enough on that particular local issue, 
you don't have to vote on it. Right. Well, let's talk about um, what's on everyone's minds, the, the 2018 elections. What are your general observations, Anne? What, how, what, what, what are your first reactions after, after uh, Wednesday morning? Well, I mean, I woke up Wednesday morning thinking, you know, if you were among those who ha- um, has opposed the Trump administration and if you were hoping for a dramatic smackdown of Trumpism, uh, you didn't get that, mm. not on a national level. I, I mean, Maine was a little bit different story. Maine really did sort of have a wave election. But on a national level, it felt more like a hard-fought, inch-by-inch, passionately um, worked uh, eke out every inch sort of victory. And, of course, the House of Representatives did flip the majority. The Senate losses had structural impediments to the Democrats taking over the Senate. Maybe their losses weren't as bad as they might have been, considering the obstacles that they face. I mean, you know, we were talking about this earlier, that Democrats um, – got millions more votes in the Senate races than the Republicans did because of population distribution in the states that were up for grabs. Democrats got millions more votes and Republicans still maintained control of the Senate. So those structural impediments were were really important. But then on the other hand, you know, as the days have crept on and looking at the majority in the um, in the main state legislature and the historic election of our first female governor in Maine, also a Democrat, um, in Maine, it feels more like it, it was a big turning point. Mm. Jamie, how about you? What are your impressions, first impressions? About yeah, I mean, it's somewhat similar. I, I have to say that for the most part, I wouldn't say that there was a lot that was surprising. I mean, I had been teaching a class where we were tracking a lot of the both the House and, and particularly the Senate. And, you know, I think everyone kind of had the assumption that, yeah, the House of Representatives was certainly a more fertile ground for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. They were most likely going to mm-hmm. make gains out there, that the Senate was going to be very tough and that the Democrats were going to have a hard time basically holding on to several seats, much less picking up a couple. Um, I think that in some respects, though, you know, whether or not we're talking about a wave or not, I'm not sure that there's any one complete narrative about this particular election. And in some respects, that's part of the story, because I'm really intrigued by some of the pockets of particular House districts that Democrats picked up that they weren't expecting to pick up in places like Georgia, um, you know, know, Oklahoma, um, a number of different places that we could talk about. Uh, in Iowa, um, Florida, California. I also think that there are some new faces. I mean, one of the intriguing things about this particular, um, I guess this particular cycle was the ways in which there were basically Democrats challenging Republican seats on all kinds of levels at every single district. There was just this commitment to, you know, people who had been really motivated, particularly after 2016, to get in the game and get activated. And so that kind of full court press brought a lot of new faces and very diverse faces. And Mm -hmm. I don't just mean demographically. I also mean from an ideological perspective. Mm -hmm. I think that the the idea that people were trying to look at this particular race to see if there's signs for which way the Democratic (laughs) Party should go on its platform and who it nominates, I don't think you got that at all. I would be very reluctant to to say that the, this was a win for the progressives or the moderates or anything. I mean, sure. I think it's just all over the map. You have different, very specific kind of and very new faces emerging. And, and I think that's that's going to be intriguing and something that will be interesting to watch. Mm. Well, and the Democratic um, Congressional Campaign Committee 
you know, made a deliberate choice not to put out a unified message. You know, they were doing what Jamie said as a strategy, which is let's find the message that works district by district by district. So they're candidates. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is typical of Democrats. It's like herding cats sometimes. But in this case, it seemed like it worked for them because they were able to um, tailor their message to all politics is local. With one notable exception, which was healthcare. I right. mean, the, the, the statistical data on me, you know ads and messaging ads was just all, you know, through the roof on mm. the consistency of drilling on healthcare and pre-existing conditions. Mm. I mean, to the extent that the Republicans were trying to run ads on pre-existing conditions to convince people they were in favor of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it was that was the one message that I do. I agree with you. Otherwise, right. I think they let the candidates be who they were going to be and fit their localities. Mm. Um, but they really thought, and I think you know, from the get-go, said we're going to just hammer this one issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they probably had some success with that. I, time will tell as we're going to sort through the data. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and, and um, you know, who turned out was a big story. You know, a lot more young people voting than had voted before. A lot more Latinos voting than had – this is a, you know, national stuff – than had voted before. And, um, you know, the big story with well-educated white suburban women um, heavily favoring Democrats. So those demographic trends were, you know, all there. Mm. I mean, in, in Maine, uh, we have – a, a year of the woman. We have so many women in the main state legislature. Uh, I just brought this little chart here. Um, let me see if I can find the number here. We had, I think, 72 women in the legislature as compared to 60. Um, no, 60 women in the House, 12 in the Senate, 72 total. That's compared to 64 in the previous legislature. I mean, that's a huge mm-hmm. pickup in women. Right here in Hancock County, we had some fantastic women candidates running and winning. Um, you know, Kim Rosen and Bev Ulanaki, you know, were running against each other, but still Kim, you know, sure. is a woman. Um, uh, Genevieve McDonald from that district and... Um, uh, Nicole Grahowski. So they both won. And then there was another really great um, woman can- candidate, Natalie Arruda, who lost. But mm-hmm. we had more women running for these seats than we've ever seen before, and a lot of them won. Sure, sure. Well, let's let's stay with, with that um, uh, uh, look at Maine. Well, remind us what else happened in Maine. First female governor. Yes, first um, female governor. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, historic level majorities for Democrats in both chambers. Um, Right now, I think this was as of yesterday, but I think in the Senate, uh, Democrats will have 20 seats, which is um, nearly a veto-proof majority, not that they're necessarily going to need it, but um, that's a big majority. Mm. Um, In the House, they thought they might be lucky to hang on to the 80 seats that they had, but it looks like they're going to have 90. And um, then another five are unenrolled independent and some of those are left-leaning too so democrats are going to have a pretty strong hand in the in the legislature and a supportive governor um you know for some of us who've been doing this work for a long time it's a, a pretty big deal for some of the young people that i work with who have never worked with a democratic governor before this is going to be a Big sea change. Mm. What do you what do you attribute that um, blue wave in Maine to? Um, if it wasn't against Trump, was it against um, our current governor? What, 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 what was no, what was you know, play? I mean, we've had LePage for a long time, and there was a lot of opposition to him. But I think it 
I think it was all motivated by activism that came out of the 2016 election. And some of that was exacerbated by the Kavanaugh nomination process, the Me Too movement. I mean, a lot of new... A lot of new candidates were women for those reasons, okay. and a lot of voters were women voting for women for those reasons. So I, I think it was about Trump. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that you, you definitely, when you begin to look at some of these local races, this is not just true in Maine and other places, the kind of coattails effect that isn't just about, pre, you know, that's not just a reference to presidential politics. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, when you have particularly a competitive congressional race, the CD2 race, you're going to have get out the vote efforts in which, you know, some people are going to show up who don't necessarily show up in midterms. And and they're going to look down the down the down the ballot, and they may not know a local candidate, but they'll see the D or the R there, mm-hmm. depending on you know who they're they're supporting up the ballot. And mm-hmm. so, I definitely think that there is probably a way in which we can attribute um, maybe Jared Golden, for instance, in CD two, you know, really running right now neck and neck with uh, Bruce Poliquin, is also probably generating some enthusiasm down the ballot and turning out some of those voters as well, uh, as well as the other things that I think Ann was talking about. Obviously, also turning out you know getting mm-hmm. people energized getting out there. Um, Jimmy, you m- mentioned that there are some pockets where um, Democrats won where where they weren't necessarily expected to. Right. Um, talk a little bit about why that might have been the case. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think, again, I almost want to say it depends, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, I remember on election night, um, we were, you know, we have a returns watching event with students. And when I'm, I'm originally from South Carolina, and there's a district down there that was Mark Sanford's old district. Some of you may remember he likes to, to hike the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> um, that we district... When it, when it flipped to the Democrats, I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, part of it may be actually some of the shifting demographic allegiances to the parties that we're seeing and made mention of this, particularly in the suburbs. And one of the interesting I guess data points is the way in which education, um, particularly among white voters, has become such a cleavage line. You know, it, it is it is inverted in some respects from where it used to be, and now you know inverted house some like in terms of where educated white voters, you know, where they particularly tend to support uh, the different parties, or particularly at the presidential level or at the congressional level, and so that's increasingly becoming a big divide. And so I think some of those house districts may be districts in particular where you. You had they may be suburban or districts where you had pockets of again white educated voters who may have been voting Republican, tipping the balance back over to Democrats with the rest of the coalitions in that district. And so, I think that's what we'll probably be looking at as we go forward and say, okay, how did this house? But in some instances, it was just a, an interesting candidate. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? There was just I was just really fascinated by some of the you know the new candidates, particularly some of the some of the veterans running as Democrats, women veterans running as Democrats. There's a, a coalition. They put together joint ads together. I mean, it was a real sense of kind of bringing out some strength by associating commonality with other people, districts and states far away, but all together working together to coordinate kind Mm -hmm. of the the way they presented themselves. Mm -hmm. And any any other thoughts about the the, uh, uh, national picture? Well, I mean, there are lots of different factors here. Um, You know, we, we, you know, what this election told me in a way, too, is like despite the very, very strong and visceral reaction that some people have to President Trump, we remain a very closely divided country. You know, there is still a very narrow band of difference between the winning and the and the losing side. And um, in those states like Georgia, which had voter suppression efforts, those efforts do not have to be very successful to shave one or two percent off the vote totals. And that can have an effect. So, um, you know, one of the headlines here was 
the election in Georgia has to have an asterisk next to it because that was not necessarily conducted on a level level playing field. So that was one of it. There were, um, you know, glitches around. I, I, I don't think, and maybe Jamie can comment on this too, I, I haven't heard a lot of news about Russian interference or hacking the election or anything like that. There were glitches. There were glitches in Maine. Um, there were glitches nationwide, faulty election equipment, mm. you know, that sort of thing, which does have an effect. And, you know, over the course of the last 10 years between um, changes in voter ID laws and the um, the uh, takedown at the Supreme Court of Section 5 of the National Voter Rights Act, I mean, there have been changes which had, have disadvantaged voters in some Areas. So in addition to the structural problems that we talked about with the Senate, where, um, you know, Wyoming gets two senators, same as California gets two senators. I mean, we get same that. Same as Maine. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, in addition to those things, there are these other trends in the conduct of elections that are just shaving a few votes off the Democrats total. And it's... Um, you know, I think that those things do have an effect. Then on the other hand, if I can just blather on for a minute more, as we talk about what didn't did not happen with the candidates, there were some very progressive ballot measures passed nationwide. Florida, for example, which is tilting on the brink of a Republican governor, a Republican senator, passed an amendment that restores the right to vote to, to felons. Um, election day registration uh, passed in Maryland. Uh, automatic voter registration passed in Nevada, which is you know typically a conservative state. I mean, there, I can go on and on. I've got a page and a half of these. There were <laughs> many, many pro-democracy ballot measures that passed around the country um, when you wouldn't have really thought that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't speak enough about the Florida one in particular. I, the 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 rules that existed there before were draconian to say the least, and were just completely outdated and and absurd. I mean, and basically honestly, remind us what what that basically was. people who had been convicted of a felony for you know even after that you know forty years later they'd served their time et cetera would have to go through this very rigorous like difficult very arbitrary process to basically plead to the to the governor. Um, to get that right back. And the system for that actually was problematic, particularly under the current governor. And so this particular ballot initiative, you know, provided a, a process for restoration that's more in keeping, I believe, with what other states have in that regard. That's going to make a really big impact, by the way. I mean, we, you know, Florida is just perennially known as this difficult state when it comes to voting. I think we're seeing that right now. We've mm. seen it over and over again. It's like Florida's being Florida again. Mm. But I mean, you're talking about a large number of voters who previously, you know, would not have been able to vote who in the next election will be able to vote. And I'm not sure how, you know, what's the number on how many will vote and, you know, who they will vote for is a matter of speculation. But I definitely think that's not a small number. I mean, that's that's something that could change the dynamic of a state which is repeatedly very divided uh, and has very close elections. So, mm. so this notion of, of, of a number of things happening that encourage democracy and that's set against those things that seem to be suppressing democracy. <laughs> Is that a, a matter of parties um, making those those distinctions, or what's what's going on, Ann? Well, I, I mean, I I I feel like you know some of this, and I want to keep going back to the structural issue yes. because I think both in the Senate and in the Electoral College, 
um, rural districts have so much more power. Mm. And that power dynamic tilts in favor of Republicans. That's a structural disadvantage that Democrats are going to have to face for probably the next generation. And it's getting worse, you know, as population concentrates on the coasts and in urban areas and as the rural districts become less populous, the population and the vote imbalance. Um, so where you can win the popular vote by three million votes and lose the electoral college, where you can gather many million more votes in Senate races and lose the um, majority. I mean, that is the way it is, mm. right? And it's going to be like that for a long time. So, I mean, this is sort of like the old adage, Democrats, in order to win in those areas, just have to be three times as good. It's a big hurdle for them to to be able to overcome. And I'll pause and let Jamie... Well, I'll, I'll just pause and we'll <laughs> remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We've got a, a, a post-election reflection going on with Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine and also host of um, WERU's radio show, Democracy Forum, and Jamie McCown, who is uh, uh, James Russell Wiggins Chair in Government and Polity at College Atlantic. In a little while, we'll open up our phone lines. But uh, first, some further comment about some of these structural issues that seem to be um, challenging democracy. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are definitely structural issues, particularly when it comes to voting processes that we might call benign neglect. I might not say it's entirely benign neglect, um, but it's neglect. And it's one of the things that frustrates me from time to time. And I appreciate the work that Anne, League of Women Voters, do in advocating on these issues, which is that, I, you know, Americans as much as they talk about how much they value their democratic processes, we don't put our put money where our mouth is in that mm. regard, and mm. we should be. You know, the the reality is is that there are long lines in particular places. Those often are economically disadvantaged communities. You're you're creating a kind of de facto marginalization if people have to spend six or seven hours waiting in line to vote because no one is allocating the resources to buy the machines that they need in order. You know, they're running on old, outdated software. I mean, I think a lot of town clerks do the best job mm. that they can do, and and I really respect the work that they do, um, but we're not always putting the resources there. I'll also say that, you know, it's a challenge when the very people who should, who know, who are responsible for passing the laws that actually guide the conduct of our elections, when they begin to believe that the outcomes of those laws will actually impact their ability to maintain control, you know, so when parties begin to see voting process laws as benefiting or not one party, all of a sudden you're no longer talking about what we should do for the health of a democratic you know, community, whether or not it's gerrymandering or same-day voting or voter ID. Once it becomes a political hot potato, then it's almost like this kind of circular process where instead of asking the question of, well, what's the best policy, it's what's the policy that's going to lead to the outcome? I mean, look at ranked choice voting right now, right? I mean, I got to be honest. I mean, if if the Poliquin folks do actually challenge that in court, uh, which is one of the things that and might just be on the table. Remind our yeah. listeners where we are in that particular contest, Anne. Um, you've been following that. Well, um, you know, the votes rolled in on Wednesday, and Golden was a little bit ahead all day Wednesday. This is Jared Golden. Jared Golden facing Bruce Poliquin on Thursday. It flipped. Now Poliquin's ahead. Um, the ranked choice voting count is going ahead in that district. The ballots started arriving in Augusta to the RCV counting center last night. They're starting to tabulate that today. They're going to work tomorrow, taking Sunday off, starting back up again on the holiday so on Monday. So remind us how ranked jo- choice voting is supposed to be working well, so it, listeners are really grounded in this. Right. So in this case, the two leading candidates are separated by about 0.5% of the 
of the vote, um, and there neither one of them is over fifty percent. Um, there's about eight percent of the vote that's split between two alternate candidates, Tiffany Bond and um, Mark Hoare. And uh, so now what's going to happen is that those votes are all going to be tabulated. Mark Hoare and Tiffany Bond will probably be quote-unquote batch eliminated in one round. Neither of them has a chance to win. And people who voted for them first will have their votes cast for their second choice. Um, most observers, I haven't seen exit poll data yet, but most observers think that m- the majority of votes for Bond and Hoare are going to go to Golden, which will likely be enough to put him over the 50% mark. So based on that, um, Mr. Poliquin is, is threatening to sue Jamie. Is that right? Well, I mean, that's the argument, right? That there's, a, there's people wondering whether or not he is going to file suit to try to challenge the constitutionality of it in court. Um, Constitutional of ranked uh, choice, choice voting, right? For this particular election, there have been, you know, there, there was a provisional kind of, there was an, a, 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 an issue that came up originally about using it in state elections, so we don't use it for the state offices. The issue of primaries, this will be specific for the general. My point about this, and just bringing it up in the context of, of the question you were asking about structural issues, Right. Is, is that, you know, really at the end of the day, one of the reasons why Paula Page and the Republicans here in the state were opposed to it is because they saw that it would actually hurt them electorally. I mean, I have not heard a lot of like philosophical. I mean, there are. Don't get me wrong. You can make some arguments sure. against ranked choice voting in general from a, from a philosophical viewpoint. But at the end of the day. It's well. The real reason is because this is going to actually help Democratic candidates vis-a-vis Republican candidates. And look, the Democrats will do the same thing in other places. You know, I mean, I mean well, if it I mean, was, it's not. No, I mean, and it's interesting because it's at this moment in time, right? right, right? Exactly. Like ten years ago, when Baldacci was winning with a, um, a less than majority, it would probably have helped Republicans. Sure. Um, we had that guy come from Australia and speak to us about how Australia has had ranked choice voting for a hundred years, and when they first got it, it was conservatives mm. that put it in to block a, block a social democrat. I mean, so, I mean, this is not really a partisan reform, but as happens in all of these things, you can talk about redistricting, you can talk about mm. money politics, clean elections, you can talk about ranked choice voting. When legislative leaders think the reform is going to cost them elections, yep. they will not do it. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the things that passed, I was saying about the remarkable ballot measures, I'm looking at five states that passed redistricting, nonpartisan redistricting right. commission measures at the ballot this week. I mean, people want it to be fair. Sure, sure. Again, um, you're t- t- tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. Um, we're talking with Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine and Jamie McCown of College of Atlantic. Um, this uh, campaign, perhaps like the last one, was vicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we saw um, uh, campaign ads and even sometimes of the debates really became rancorous. Jamie, I, I have a hunch that that's historically, we've always had rancor in, in our elections. <laughs> oh, and yes, going we back have. into the 1800s, um, there, there was some really dastardly things done um, at that time. Could you characterize this particular um, 2018 election in terms of that kind of um, dis-civility? <laughs> <laughs> dis-civility. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, there definitely are, are waves and fluxes in time in which we have more negative campaigning. And, and people, when people complain about negative campaigning, I always say, well, if it didn't work, they wouldn't do it. 
right? right. And so, you know, and, and, and absolutely, going back, you know, I, we start usually when we start talking about negative campaigning in my classes, we'll start about 1828. So, yeah, it's got a long history here uh, in many respects. I think what's interesting about this one was in particular the way in which the president was driving the, the, you know, the, the ad that a lot of people were comparing to the infamous Willie Horton ad and to the revolving door ads of the 1988 campaign. Um, that particular ad was not just like being run by one Senate candidate or not. It was – and one of the things that actually made it different than the Willie Horton ad was that you know Trump himself like tweeted the ad out. And so it was kind of from above being this kind of unified attack piece. And that's one of the things that's – you know, going to be interesting is to see, you know, whether or not um, that continues. Um, I think we're also going to, I'm really curious to see what the working relationship is going to be between now the democratically controlled house and the president. Um, I'm, I'm, it can go a couple of different ways. And I think it will definitely set the tone for how, if he chooses to rerun for reelection in 2020, how Trump will go. But I do think that um, that was probably the, a negative part. At some of these local levels, though, it was interesting. When some of the Senate races we were watching, some of the candidates were actually trying to not go too negative. And, uh -huh. and in fact, and part of that might be because they were letting the outside interest groups do it, you know, particularly after Citizens United and some of the other uh, um, different court rulings that have allowed more leeway between these different PAC organizations, unaffiliated PAC organizations. So I, I think that um, we might see more of that, which is we might see candidates trying to kind of claim the civil high ground and then let the outside groups do some of the, for lack of a better term, dirty work when mm. it came, comes to kind of incivility. Mm. And from the League of Women Voters perspective, you've been tracking these kinds of things for a long time. Uh, any thoughts about this particular election in terms of the issue of civility and, and uh, uh, negativity? Well, I mean, we obviously think ranked choice voting provides a basis for the, a more civil conduct to the elections. It doesn't necessarily help people to bring up the negatives of their opponents. It, because they want to be, to be the second. second. Okay. Exactly. So yeah. in the couple of races where we had ranked choice voting, I think that was at play. The other thing was that because we had ranked choice voting in the gubernatorial primary, there was, a, in my opinion, at least a lot more unity among Democrats coming out of the primary because they had not engaged in that kind of negative backstabbing in the run-up to uh, Janet Mills victory in the primary so the democrats came out a little bit more unified um not all attributable to ranked choice voting but perhaps mm -hmm. some some of it was um you know i have not heard reports of um outside spending like we had in 2010 whether Re republican state leadership committee dropped uh, like $500,000 the weekend before the election with a series of really quite vicious um mailers in key senate districts i have not heard that that happened this year um, maybe maybe Jamie has some I'm, other. I'm not for the state ones. I do know that the Poliquin campaign dumped a big mail uh, mail hit, right? Because I collect direct mail pieces from uh, different people in my community who always like it. They they appreciate that it's not so going into so their fireplace. Right. It's going uh, right. So we actually, I know it's it's my students cringe, but I'm like, we're going to look at direct mail now. But um. They really – they came fast right at the end with a blitz of these very standardized like five or four or five different issue ones, particularly against Golden, um, that were direct mail pieces. And so there was a kind of targeted of that. But I, yeah, we don't know entirely yet. I think there's still some data out there and you know you have to sort through and begin to look. And, and again, I want to go back to the fact that I'm not sure we can characterize across the entire nation for this sure. election. I think there's a, the, the, the rule here will be the non-rulability, the kind of diversity of it. So, and and the uh, uh, the uh, 
voter patterns. You said that this is a, um, a bigger turnout. Some voters are so turned off by these, this negativity that they, are, they, they drop out. I know. And so how does that help? The, it doesn't help the, the political process, but Jamie says it, the negative ads work. They do, alas and alack. And, yeah. um, you, you know, you can provide all the information after the fact about who paid for it and what their interests were and why they were nefarious or whatever. But once that image burns into your retina, like mm-hmm. you can't get rid of it, and it does have an, have an effect, um, alas and alack. Mm-hmm. And let's be clear. I mean, negative campaigning inherently is not problematic for a democratic society. I mean, it's important. I've, I remember being in a radio debate one time with one person, you know, one candidate. We, I was one of the moderators and one of the candidates said, I'm, I'm for creating more jobs, you know, and another one not wanting to go negative said, oh, I'm from creating more jobs and keeping the jobs we have. And that was the extent of the debate, right? Because <laughs> no one wanted to say, sure. actually, your policy is not so good. So the question isn't necessarily always about whether or not it's negative. Uh-huh. We actually need candidates to raise point, problems point out, right. and point out. I think the, the question is about the tone, right. what's fair game, what's constructive. So, um, I mean, if I can interrupt, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, one, it's one thing to say um, I oppose clean elections um, and I think my can't, my opponent is wrong to use publicly financed money. I mean, I think that's the kind of constructive sure. contrast between people's records that is constructive in a democracy. It's another thing to say my opponent is the swamp thing for, you know, <laughs> taking clean elections money. I mean, that's right. over right. the line. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of open up our phone lines. And, and if you could think a little bit, of, you know, about the, um, the, the next next election, you know, what, are, what, are we, what we think will this election say about the next election, which will be a presidential election. But I will open up the phone lines to ask um, listeners um, how they're feeling after the results of the 2018 elections. Um, are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling discouraged? Um, what's your point of view? Give us a call at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight or four six nine zero five zero zero. Give us a call and participate in this post-election reflection. So, what are some of the implications going forward? Do you think of this election? Um, more energized voters, um, more diverse voters and candidates. Um, certainly, uh, some some uh, presidential top-down kind of of uh, direction to to how the campaigns of the Republicans get get run. What are some other implications, do you think, of, of this election cycle? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in in Maine with the strong majority uh, uh, in the de- in the governor's party, um, how they're going to take on governance mm, over the next sure. biennium. Um, you know, are they going to uh, govern from the the middle and try to continue to bring bipartisan solutions forward. I mean, there's some things that they want to do and they will be able to do without obstruction. Um, so I, I think a lot remains to be seen in Maine, um, how that govern, governance goes forward. You know, in some of the um, pro-democracy work that we do in the League of Women Voters, we find that the more important reforms are the hardest to defend. Mm-hmm. The more impact they have, the more opposition and the more long-lived that opposition is. So for us, some of the most important reforms are important to pass with bipartisan support. Sure. So we're going to want to try to find a way to bring some of those minority Republicans along with some some of the work that we do. But, um, you know, some of it will depend on the tone that 
Democratic Party leadership takes, too. Mm. And is that also true at the national level um, in terms of how the, the House um, tries to, to um, move forward? Uh, we're going to see, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I, I, from my perspective, one of the – and I mentioned this a little while ago that I think that watching how Trump interfaces with the House of Representatives, how um, – I mean it's not a partisan statement to say that if you just watch Trump's style, you know that he is comfortable blaming other mm -hmm. people for failures. That is mm -hmm. kind of a mode that he is very sure. in groove with. And so the ability to, to talk or to blame the House of Representatives, particularly if – as we expect, though I'm not certain that it's certain yet that Nancy Pelosi ends up uh, in charge or being the, 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 the speaker – that um, will, I think, give him the opportunity to just constantly go back and forth on that. And I'm not sure what it'll, what it'll mean. I also think one of the other implications is is that you're going to have a pretty wide open Democratic field when it comes to the Democrats looking for who they're going to nominate. I mean, mm -hmm. it started as of Wednesday already, right? Mm -hmm. It's the official start of the 2020 <laughs> campaign is we're already underway. And I mean, you could say so, that some people are going to take away from the election on Tuesday that, hey, let's go back to the Rust Belt and look at gains in places where Trump flipped that we can maybe get back back in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan or look at Arizona and Nevada and even New Mexico where I think the Dems picked up a governorship, right? Like so maybe we need candidates that can appeal in those states. And so I'm not certain there's a clear – there's no clear silver bullet I think that, mm -hmm. it, that will say, ah, this is who you need to pick for your nominee. Great. I think we have a call. Um, welcome to Talk of the Towns and our reflection on the 2018 elections. Go ahead with your uh, – give, give us your name, your first name and where you're calling from, and then um, go ahead with your question or comment. Great. Uh, my name is Lawrence. I'm calling from Belfast. And um, to bring things a little bit local here, um, I'm calling about the city council race here, which was of great interest here in Belfast, and I think it's fair to say around the area, uh, because there was a slate of three candidates running who were essentially opposed to the uh, quite large uh, fish factory that's been uh, proposed for here in Belfast. And I think that in the wake of the election that, that some opponents of the fish factory may be a little bit discouraged because none of those candidates won. But I would like to point out that uh, two of those three were, um, were write-ins, which of course, as we all know, is a very difficult uphill slog. And the other is that the one candidate who was on the ballot actually got um, uh, more than 91% of the number of votes that, that her opponent got. Who was an incumbent had the advantage of incumbency. So you asked a few moments ago whether you know one was feeling discouraged, and I just want to uh, put that out there that 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 folks shouldn't read too much into uh, the fact that 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 slate lost. And did you do you feel that that um, that particular issue, um, among others, really fired people up in in Belfast? So people came out to the polls because of that local issue. Well, I, I can tell you that I worked four hours at the polls um, for uh, Maine All Care, and the turnout was quite heavy. I mean, I was really impressed. I had never seen anything like it. Now, obviously, you know, that could be uh, other factors as well. I mean, there was heavy turnout coast to coast, is my understanding. But, but no, I mean, there, there's, there's been and continues to be a lot of interest in this issue um, here in Belfast, and I'm sure that that spurred, you know, some people to go to the polls. Great. Well, thanks for your call this morning. Um, you called one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight and participated in this post 
election reflection. And you talked a little bit about some of the um, the, the role of women in this particular election. Um, we'll get to another call in just a minute, but I wanted to, to, to uh, ask you again, the Women's March the Me Too movement, the Kavanaugh hearings, the Parkland students' leadership, um, Pantsuit Nation, Indivisible, <laughs> all of these things kind of – these weren't controlled by a party. These were just right. grassroots efforts, yeah. and that made a difference. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, as I said before, the level of engagement by women in politics since the 2016 election converging with the Me Too movement and some of these other things. I mean, women are turning out to vote in in record numbers. I think we're seeing that. And women are running for office in record numbers and winning. Mm. Um, women are seen as more relatable candidates and their leadership style is being voted in by women. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a huge trend. And, and you know, moreover, there was just more voter turnout for a midterm election. I mean, I think this was a record turnout in um, nationally for a midterm election. And I haven't seen the final numbers from Maine. I don't think all the polling places have been reporting yet. But um, everybody that I know said their polling place was more busy than they've mm-hmm. ever seen it. So that's good for democracy. We have another call, I think. Um, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, go ahead with your comment. Are you still hello. there? Hello, hello. Yes, go ahead. Yes, oh, great. Thank great, you. Great. Um, yeah, you, you know, um, it, it, it seems to me that this idea of uh, Bruce Colloquin challenging, uh, or, or we're being told that he, you know, he, he may challenge the results because... Uh, without ranked choice voting, he would have won. Mm. Uh, or or anybody, you know, talking in terms of nonpartisanship, anybody challenging ranked choice voting, saying that uh, just having a, a plurality, plurality, they'd be, they'd be the winner, um, doesn't make sense because we're all told different things when we go into ranked choice voting. You know, we're told that we vote for our first person and then, you know, our second choice. So the way we vote is, is different. Uh, in this system. Um, for instance, if you really like Tiffany Bond, but you were afraid that uh, Jared Golden wouldn't win, um, then and under plurality, you would perhaps go for Jared rather than Tiffany Bond. You, you see what I mean? Totally. Yeah. I, so, so, so it doesn't work to say, well, you know, Pollockman would have won. <laughs> so I don't know on what basis they would be trying to, and of course, you know, they haven't done this yet, um, but it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. The rules are different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think if the challenge if the challenge goes forward, at least what I'm hearing is that one, the basis might be the same basis that was used to challenge the Arizona redistricting law. That is that methods of cho- choosing members of the U.S. House of Representatives must be decided by state legislators, le- legislatures and where the Arizona uh, redistricting commission was passed by ballot initiative that almost got overturned by the supreme court um and i think the challenge here would be also because ranked choice voting passed by ballot initiative that it violates the u.s constitution that members of congress must be chosen by a method determined by state legislatures um you know whether that would win or not is a question and then if it did win, what the remedy would be yeah. is also a question because what the caller is saying, you know, somebody who voted for Tiffany Bond first in a ranked choice voting election would never, not never, but may not have done that. Many of those voters may not have done that if they didn't think they were going to get a second choice vote. So what stands as the plurality on the first round now is not what you would have expected 
uh, a vote for one election outcome to look like. Mm. Jamie? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I mean, aside from the question of on what grounds they would challenge it and whether or not they, they would have a lot of chance on those grounds, and there's that one, and then the one person, one vote federal you know, constitutional guarantee grounds, which I think are much harder for them to win on. The remedy question, I think, would be really complicated. You know, I mean, a court would have to honestly be looking at the fact of, well, if you are you going to redo a revote, are you going to throw out and just basically, as you were talking about, you know, pretty much acknowledge that just, you know people were strategically voting based on their assumption about that their ranks were going to be counted. Mm. You know, and remember, this isn't the first time I mean, we did this in the primary already, so it's not like you know you could say, well, this is the first time. I mean, mm-hmm. people had, were doing it, having or at least for the primaries, having in the Democratic side, having already done it once before. So, I think you know it's. It would be – I'd be very curious. I, I'm not sure we know yet whether or not Poliquin plant will challenge. I think there's probably some calculations there also that could, you know, maybe spark a backlash from people. Mm. I think that would not be – I mean, I think there are people probably who maybe even voted for Poliquin who maybe like ranked choice voting and liked having the opportunity mm. to do that, and that could, you know, sour them. So I think we have another call. Um, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, go ahead, please. Hi. Hi. Uh... The first thing I wanted to say is that what I've been feeling in my neighborhood is uh, a great need to, now that the election's over, to mend fences and be able to go on relating to each other as fellow uh, community members. Uh, And so I'm just being as careful as I can myself not to... Uh, be crowing about any victories that I might have experienced and to try to uh, be humble about what it feels like to lose because I've experienced what it feels like to lose. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, uh, so that one thing. Another thing about the ranked choice, a couple thoughts about the ranked choice. One, it brings more into uh, 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 current uh, relevancy the whole existence of of uh, second and third party candidates, and I would like to just air a long-standing grievance I've had with the League of Women Voters for not allowing a more open debate policy uh, on the national scene. Uh, times when there have been alternate uh, party candidates who are running who are not allowed to debate. May I, I just interrupt and say you are aware that the League of Women Voters has not run those debates since 1984. Right. Oh, no, I'm not aware of that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> National Debate Commission group, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. Go ahead. Uh, the other thing, uh, in view of the, the uh, ranked choice, it seems that we're gradually getting used to the notion that it may take more than overnight for us to figure out who wins. And uh, I, I would like to totally say that that's okay with me. Uh, and in, in the light of that, I would like to really put in what plug I can for paper ballots again, uh, places where the districts can't afford voting machines. In our district, we had basically six voting machines. We had six little booths with curtains around them, and we didn't have any lines at all. Uh, 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 people are scared of voting machines because it takes so much time to count the votes and uh and because it takes so many people in a large urban area to count the votes, I'd suggest perhaps the Democrats and the Republic Party, out of their largesse, could could finance uh, some temporary salaries for vote counters uh, in, in such a system. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to get a really democratic system until we get back to paper ba- ballots, because it's pretty well 
admitted uh, by anybody who knows about computers and computer hacking that voting machines are one of the easiest uh, uh, critters to hack out there in computer land. Great, thanks. Uh, uh, so that my say. That's very good. Thanks so much for your call this morning. And Well, um, I just want to reassure people that everybody in Maine votes with a paper ballot, that we have paper ballots as the uh, record for recounts for um, uh, any time there's an election dispute, we can always refer back to the paper ballot. Um, it's probably also true that without scanners, optical scanners, ranked choice voting would not be a practical solution. Right? <laughs> oh, um, yeah. it, it would be you know, very, very difficult sure. for us to do ranked choice voting without scanners. And then lastly, that um, you know, although we are very aware and concerned about election security and want to make sure that elections are conducted um, in as secure a manner as possible, the way in which our optical scanning machines are configured, it would be very difficult for them to be hacked. They are never online. They are never connected to the Internet. Um, and in the elections that we have recounted, and this is true not only in Maine but nationwide, it's um, indisputable that the scanners count more accurately than hand count. Mm. So, mm. Jamie? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that the caller also mentioned was about the delay in returns reporting. Right. And you know, what's fascinating to me is if, and it's an if, ranked choice voting becomes something that is done by more states for these more high-profile elections. It's done at some local levels, but I mean, I'm mm-hmm. talking for races for Congress mm-hmm. and for the U.S. Senate and governor, et cetera. If that happens, I think that there are a lot of people who do like campaign workers, like people who work in the business of politics, uh, people that I used to work with, who are going to have to start rethinking some of the traditional ways that they've done things, not the least of which is polling. Mm. Uh, and also journalists who are already beginning to think, how do we do reporting on mm-hmm. this? You know, how do we do exit polls? How do we begin to to do that? And and maybe we don't, you know, all stay up till five in the morning on Wednesday and we say, it's cool. I can wait until next week to know. Um, though I'm not sure I'm too good at that. I'm pretty much more <laughs> of the junkie type who wants to, to not sleep at all. So. We've got one more call. Let's take that call and uh, um, go ahead. You're on Talk of the Towns this morning. Yeah, hi. This is Charlie Mount Desert. I just want to say how great a program this is. Uh, once again, you know, you guys put on a terrific show and very informative, very interesting. And in particular, all your panelists have been great today. But in particular, I want to mention Ryan himself, who for almost 20 years has been putting this Talk of the Towns program on. And that's just great. And Ann Luther, who has an award-winning touch with, with Democracy Forum. And, and, of course, Amy Brown, you know, the, the public affairs director here at WRU, who is doing a great job with that. That's a huge part of the programming at WRU. And I just wanted to, to say that before everybody gets off the air. And, Charlie, you're not so bad yourself. Thank you very <laughs> much for your work on WERU. I think we have one more call. I think we can squeeze that in. Go ahead with your uh, question or comment, please. Yes. Uh, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Okay. So uh, I was uh, very, very upset uh, uh, with the Pelican campaign. Ran the dirtiest campaign, even more dirty than it was last time. The thing that really got me, and I'm a veteran, mm-hmm. is one veteran was bad-mouthing another veteran, and he had veterans behind him bad-mouthing. Mm-hmm. I saw needles falling from the sky. I see all this negative stuff. I got a thing in the mail. It had a picture of Jerry Golden in black and white, and he was real dark, and it said in big letters, liar. Hmm. Now, I'm just wondering, and on the back of that was a picture of Poliquin and Susan Collins, and they were laughing, almost laughing at Jerry Golden here, who served this country and is, wants to do something for the state. 
Didn't like that at all. Mm. A veteran against a veteran. I thought that was despicable. The other thing, I'm very upset at, like, Channel 5. I don't know about the other channels because I can't get them, but Channel 5, all it did was to sow more hatred and division, commercial after commercial, bad-mouthing this person and bad-mouthing that person. And I've called them up, and they say they have to do it. It's a rule that they have to put this stuff on. But you know what? It turns out that can't somebody stand up when something is despicable mm. that somebody can't stand up? And and why would I want to advertise with Channel 5 at the same time that all this other stuff is going on? Because people mute the TV. They turn the TV off. So, I mean, the whole thing was bad. Mm. And I'm wondering, can't this ever have some kind of... Uh, respectable, uh, something, say what you're going to do, not what the other person is not going to do. Great. Anyway, I'm rambling on. It's close <laughs> to the end, but tell me, what uh, do I have any hope for <laughs> Great. next time around? Well, uh, that's not a bad thing, uh, to ask about hope. So thanks very much for your call this morning. Well, do we have hope? <laughs> what, what are, I mean, again, the, given the, the negativity, and, and Jamie, you point out that in the 1820s that, that, that there were really despicable things said in newspapers. There weren't any radio or TV, but right. <laughs> it was true. newspapers. Um, what, 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 do you see any silver lining in any of this? People are disgusted. People are disgusted, but it works. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned that I think the, the the veteran mailer that he was talking about was part of the blitz that I think Poliquin's people sent out, at least I know, sent out towards the end of the campaign. And mm. and they had tested some ideas. I mean, if you watch the debates, I think we used to play the, the bingo game of young radical revolutionary socialist uh, was there like key words that they just kept slamming because that was what they thought worked for them. And, mm-hmm. and there is a sense in which if, you know, it, someone mentioned earlier the idea that we're very tightly divided, that if what you're really doing is trying to fight to like sway maybe 5% of the population and often – you know, right. and, and, and maybe that's a, a part of the population that's not really paying attention to looking at the details, that all you're doing is just trying to Characterize. just throw as much right. as you can to kind of saturate the media ecology around them. You know, I often I, – I, this is – there's another way in which you, we can say – and I'm not talking about the caller because obviously he was paying very close attention. But one way to kind of get past this is for for voters to actually – pay more attention and do their own independent homework. You know, I often will tell students, why do you think that you're supposed to be able to get informative information in 30 seconds or 60 seconds from a campaign mm-hmm. ad? You know, you probably spend more time reviewing toasters than you do sure. necessarily. That's not just students either, no, by the way. That's, right. that's a lot of that's people. Right. And so, I mean, I, I think that's part of, if, if the hope for me, hope is the idea of starting, it's going to take a long time, and constantly cultivating uh, an interest and respect and engagement. That's mm. on my side. So, so um, using your voters' muscles, not letting them atrophy, is, is something that both of you have been working on. Absolutely. And somebody told me lately that they rewatched the um, famous Kennedy-Nixon debate, sure. the televised debate, and um, that they were astonished, completely astonished, by the level of policy detail that and the information that was exchanged between between the two candidates how much they knew and how much observers learned from that i mean we all hunger for that day but i think you know what we're seeing since the, the over the last two years is a tremendous upwelling of interest in politics and a recognition that public policy politics and government affects every corner of our local state and national life it affects how much we make it affects 
um, control of the capital markets or deregulation of the capital markets. It affects our health care. It affects our children's education. Every single corner of our life is affected by that public square. And the more we know about it and the more engaged we are in it, the better off we're all going to be and the more likely that our government is going to reflect our own values. Mm. I, I mean, I think that also, though, we do have to confront the question of what engagement means in a world in which people are increasingly more bifurcated into echo chambers of their media sources, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea of digital media is this kind of revolutionary, empowering thing. The internet and social media, we're going to open up and empower people to get get control over the information. But at the same time, it's also allowed people to kind of go down into their own rabbit holes. And so, in some respects, where they're going to engage and get that information from is going to be also an important question. So, sources like the League of Women of Voters, <laughs> really important. And and other sources that you that you kind of study enough to know that you can trust those as, as useful, um, helpful that's, information. That's, that's the thing. You have to be a smart consumer yeah. of the of the news. Great. Well, we've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from uh, 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each morning uh, month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of UMaine Sea Grant uh, on the fourth Friday of each month and certainly um, uh, come in next week for um, Ann Luther's um, program, uh, D- Democracy Forum. Um, it airs at the same time. Our theme music is a is a medley from Coronac on a Bond Lane House Highland music recording. Thanks so much to our guest in the studio, Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine and Jamie McCowan of College of the Atlantic. Thanks to our, our uh, th- those who called in with their questions and experience. Thanks to our underwriters. Um, thanks uh, for um, all.